You've just passed a theory component, and it's time to get into the aircraft for your IPC and take to the skies. The ground component went well. You're feeling good. The flight plan's in and confirmed. You turn over the props, and they start no worries. And you taxi off in what you hope is a correctly configured aircraft and programmed GPS. You depart and climb. There's some light cloud, a few rain showers, but nothing major. You put on the hood, and you track to your first waypoint. Suddenly you realise it's the wrong approach. You start to fumble around and mash the keypad. Your heart starts racing and lose 500 feet in the blink of an eye and are told to head home. Today we're discussing the most common errors made on an IPC flight test leading to a fail assessment and how you can avoid them. So strap in and let's get into it. Yeah, g'day everyone and welcome to episode three of Flight Trading Australia, the podcast about flight trading in Australia and Australian regulations. I'm your host, Trent Robinson, and thank you for joining me. For those that are just finding the podcast, welcome. For those that have uh, listened to the other episodes, thanks for sticking around. I'm uh, pleased to announce the rollout's fully complete now and the podcast is available on all major podcast uh, players and servers, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So today's topic is discussing the common errors in the flight component of an IPC. Following on from our last episodes, looking at the best ways to prepare for an IPC in the ground theory component. So if you haven't listened to episodes one and two, make sure you do. As an examiner, the hardest thing is to fail someone in a flight test, no matter what level it is and no matter how long I've been doing it for. More often than not, though, we can usually see it coming and it usually comes down to a lack of preparation. Remember the good old five Ps. Prior preparation prevents poor performance. And to be honest, sometimes it simply comes down to the six Ps and the student has no one to blame but themselves. Sometimes, however, we just do our best and mess up and, hey, that's life. But good news is, the majority of times, it is avoidable. The thing to understand, though, here, folks, is that there are no shortcuts here. Training costs money. If you train with a good instructor out there, they will do everything they can to ensure you spend as little as possible if you do what they ask you to do and do it the right way with the right number of flights including simulator and aircraft. Flying is like getting back onto a bike. However, if you expect to fly the same way after conducting four weeks intensive full-time training, back when you got your first instrument rating, you're probably going to be sadly mistaken. So firstly, a common theme I see when conducting either an IFR, refresher or IPCs is just a lack of cockpit management or no real system in place to be prepared for what's coming ahead. Now, those listening who aren't IFR yet, don't worry. This is IFR-focused, but these tips can apply to pretty much any flight, VFR or IFR. So once you've got the aircraft started, make sure you're set up as much as possible before you move. We're in a position where life's good, park brakes on, we've got no one else in our way or moving us on. Once we leave that initial parking position, even if it's in the run-up bay, you can get busy you can get pressured to move by controllers or other aircraft, and you might miss something. 
for an IPC, depending on how your flight's configured, you could be doing a uh, one-stage plan or a two-stage plan. If you're just planning a touch and go and keep on going, then plan the whole GPS. One of the traps that causes a bit of stress is that once we get to the halfway point and finish the first approach, there's nothing in the GPS for the return trip home. Now, depending on the examiner you're with, you may end up doing a landing and backtrack. That's usually to set up for an engine failure on departure. Then there's time to set up the GPS. But if not, get it all set up before you go. Now, some of you will be thinking, yeah, but Trent, if I do that, when I go to load a GPS, it always gives my destination aerodrome. Well, yeah, that is a little thing that the GPS does, usually the Garmin 430s and the like, but not all. But it's really simple. All you need to do is press clear, outer knob, scroll up to the top and change the aerodrome to your midway destination, and there you go. You can load your approach and it's all set to go. Stay ahead of the aeroplane. Some of you will probably be familiar with the term next event or something similar. Being ahead of the aircraft. Where am I? What's coming up next? Brief yourself to program your mind and help detect errors and things that might not be set up correctly yet. Internal monologue usually doesn't help pick up mistakes, so feel free to talk out loud if you need to. Sure, you're not going to do that with passengers on board, but you don't have passengers. It's you and the examiner, so go for it. And hey, it gives us a really good insight as to what is actually going on in there and what you're doing, and it will help us give you feedback at the end of the test. If you're going to do the takeoff safety brief, then think about it. It's not just lip service to get out of the way. It's here to consider your aircraft's performance and your immediate environment. So I'm not going to go into the whole uh, in-depth sequence here. This, this could be a whole episode by itself. But just think about what you're doing and what you're going to say. Brief yourself on the actual conditions, on the runways that are available, on the terrain that's ahead of your aircraft for single or multi-engine engine failure scenarios. What's the weather? What's the cloud base? Sector entries and holds, poorly done. Why? Because they're not often done. I've done IPCs for guys up here in Darwin who reckon they've never done a hold for real. Well, so far this build-up season, I've already done five, as directed by ATC. The thing to remember is you have a qualification and can be called on to uh, perform any of it at any time, not just because you've planned or not planned to do it. So sector entries, sector one, two, and three. Read the AIP or the JEPS and read what it actually says to do. The biggest misconception is sector two. So often everyone will get the 30 degrees off the reciprocal of the inbound track on the holding side correct, but fly a heading. Read the whole passage and you'll find it is to fly a heading to make good a track. That means it is an outbound intercept. If you're doing an RNAV holding pattern, you need to set the OBS or suspension function, set the 30-degree outbound track for one minute, then set the intercept for the inbound track. Once that's done, and if you continue your hold, 
Then it's simply a heading bug on the outbound turn. We don't turn the CDI. Remember, the CDI only needs to be turned when we're trying to actually intercept and navigate by the CDI itself. If there's no destination in front of you or behind you, then it's not doing anything. Remember, CDI set, heading bug set, then make the turn. Don't try and do it whilst you're in the turn. It will avert your gaze from your primary scan and you'll most likely lose altitude and potentially go out of tolerances. But before we even get to the hold, there's the whole setting up the hold itself. OBS setting, OBS, or obstruct, or suspend, it comes in various forms. But the very process of suspending the flight plan sequence so it doesn't sequence on to the next waypoint until you're ready. When do we set OBS? I get all manner of answers for this one sometimes one mile or two miles before. Well, the only problem with that is if you're coming direct into the waypoint, facing the direction of the approach, that's probably not a drama and you'll get away with it. However, if you're coming from any other angle, what you might find is the flight plan's turn anticipation will say, hey, given the angle that you're approaching, you need to make a really hard, sharp turn now, and it will actually start to sequence onto the intermediate waypoint before you've even decided that you need to do that yourself. It will then start showing different information. It will reference your initial waypoint, but the numbers and the distance tracks, if you look carefully, won't match up. All right. OBS simply suspends the flight plan sequence. Once you start tracking to your holding point, you can set obstruct or suspend straight away. You can do this five miles out. You can do it 500 miles out. As long as that's the track you're planning on flying into that waypoint, you can hold it. It doesn't change anything else. Okay, so have a think about that one because, again, if you miss it and it sequences on, this is where the keypad smashing and button pushing and uh, dial twirling all starts and things start to unfold very, very rapidly. Wind. Poor wind. Of all the elements, I probably find wind has the lowest self-esteem of them all. It gets blamed for everything, every bad landing, every time we go off track, every bad approach. All right? We're flying with a GPS. We've got so much information at hand. We've got a track we want to fly. We've usually got a tracking indication. All you need to do is line up the desired track with what you're actually tracking. Look at the top of your DG or your HSI. And whatever is there is your drift angle. Set your heading bug straight ahead and hold the gap. That will then allow you to track. Just remember, though, we're usually starting an approach some 3,000 feet above the ground. As we come down, the wind can change. You need to monitor it. But don't overdo it. Don't start looking at your track so much that you're not looking at your primary instrument scan. Again, this is where things tend to go a little bit pear-shaped. On one of your approaches, you're going to be doing an asymmetric approach. Now, your examiner will inform you of which one this is going to be, and it will usually be done so that you've got time to manage it prior to top of descent. It needs to be done by the final approach fix. 
when you have an asymmetric condition, you need to understand your aircraft that you're flying and how to fly it in an asymmetric configuration. That goes without saying. There is no one hard set rule here, and it doesn't necessarily depend on a light, low-powered twin to a high-powered twin or a turbine. They are all different, and they all require different handling and configurations. Remember, power plus attitude plus configuration equals performance. There will be times where you need to have gear down and you need to have flap, usually first stage or approach flap. Now, if we're coming down for a missed approach to the minima, then we want to be configured for landing. And this is where you may need to consult the QRH for your particular aircraft. It may have a one engine and operative configuration, which is usually somewhere around approach flap. If we're coming down for circling, you may need to get the gear and the flap up or just the flap up once you commence the circling. This will all depend again on the aircraft you're flying. So get to know the details. Something like a Baron will usually have flap and gear. You can get the flap up and it'll usually circle asymmetric okay. The King Air will handle gear and flap down. The Conquest, you need to clean it all up. Otherwise, it's just too much drag to carry around. Don't make the mistake of thinking, I've only got 15, 20 seconds to go before I need to put the gear down again. If you're not performing, clean it up. When we're flying the approach, we also need to regulate our speed and descent rate. Remember the golden rule of ground speed times five. This will give you your typical rate of descent you should be aiming for. If you're approaching at about 100 knots, you're looking for 500 feet per minute, 120 knots, 600 feet per minute, and so on. This is what you should be aiming for. When we commence a descent, we want to set the attitude that will give you that performance. So know what that is, two degrees, two and a half, three degrees nose down, and hold that attitude. Hold the attitude, you'll get the performance you're expecting. You'll stay on profile much easier. Monitor your tracking and you'll hold the CDI right down the middle. So now what about the descent? What are we coming down to? What is the minima and how do we adjust it? Remember the three Q&H sources. We've got an actual AWIS, ATIS or approved Met Observer, which unless you're in a reasonable organisation, you're rarely going to have. So it's just an ATIS or AWIS. If we've got that, the shaded region on the DAT plates or the uh, appropriate box on the jet plate, we can remove 100 feet. Or you'll just see the minimum published is 100 feet less than the others if you're on JEPs. If we have the TAF and we actually input the TAF onto the altimeter, then we can use the published minima on the plate. But just remember, having the TAF in your back pocket is completely useless. If you use that and you haven't set the minima that was on the TAF and it's different, you will have come down to the incorrect minima setting and it will be a fail. If you haven't got the TAF and you haven't got an actual Q&H, then you're using the area Q&H and that's going to be plus 50. If you are doing this using paper plates, cross out the minima and apply the applicable one. 
if you're using electronic flight bag, Avplan, Osramways, etc., Garmin Pilot, you can also add annotations either by using an Apple Pencil or your finger or some like Osramways, you can actually add an annotation in text and click on it and drag it into position. So you can adjust the minimums and not make these mistakes. Now, I often do get asked, well, why is there a shaded box? If you can't get a Q&H from an accurate source, what's the point? It's just a standard uh, approach plate layout so that one day maybe there is and then they don't have to go and resurvey the whole airfield. That's all. Simple as that. So Q&H sources, make sure you set your minimums. Visual circling. Again, this can get uh, messed up very, very easily, especially if it is actual circling conditions. Visual circling is just that it's an actual approach procedure. It's part of the instrument approach. It's different to just conducting low-level circuits. So if you're coming down to a circling minima, we need to make sure we comply with the circling minima criteria, which is keeping the runway landing environment visual. If you wait until you're virtually on top of your runway approaching threshold before you turn left or right, you've just gone blind on the airfield. The runway is going to be down below you, and I know some operators do this, but you're not keeping the runway visual at all times. So make sure you break off soon enough that you've got the chance to keep the landing environment orientated and visual because, again, the assumption is that the visibility is down to some two and a half uh, thousand metres, 2.k vis, thereabouts, and you need to maintain orientation both with our imaginary horizon but also with the landing environment. If we lose it, missed approach. What if you needed to descend early? Can you descend below the circling minima at any time? Well, we can as long as we maintain a minimal obstacle clearance. And I keep saying 300 feet is not that. 300 feet on top of the highest obstacle in the area. This is something you need to determine before you go flying. So make sure you're aware of that. All right, so I think that just about wraps it up for the most common errors or misunderstandings that we see on flight tests and certainly what I see and uh, in talking with other examiners. Just remember, at the end of the day, it is your test. Take your time, slow down. You're allowed to use autopilots. You're allowed to use electronic flight bag. Use the GPS. Use everything at the disposal. You fly the, plight, uh, you fly the flight how you want to fly it. Let the examiner coordinate the test, and they'll make sure that they set up things so they can see what they need to see. Just remember, if you do have a fully functional autopilot that is approach capable, you can use it, but one approach needs to be flown by hand. Make sure you revise those MOS standards, Table 2 and Table 5 for those CDI tolerances. Remember, those CDI tolerances for flight testing are half scale, 5 degrees. All right? Don't get caught out on that. It's not a race. Take it slow and you'll be just fine. So good luck. All right. 
That's it for our IPC series for the time being. We'll certainly come back onto it. As you can tell, there's so much to talk about and we've skimmed across it. We could do a whole episode just on one topic. Remember, you can email me on info at trentrobinsonaviation, all one word, .com.au. Just put podcasts in the subject line and send me your questions and I'll do my best to answer it in a future episode. Of course, you can also find me on Facebook or Instagram, Trent underscore Robinson underscore aviation. You'll be able to find out all of our future podcast announcements, plus some of the photos and things I get up to every day as well. So follow me there. All right, next episode, we're going to have one for the beginners out there. We're going to get into learning to fly, choosing a flying school, how to get set up, all the do's and don'ts, things you're going to actually need versus not need, and how to actually stay in-flight training. Sounds a bit crazy, but how much is it going to cost? How to budget? All these things, really good, useful tips, so stay tuned for that. And if you know someone looking to learn to fly, make sure you share it with them for me. Until then, blue skies, and remember the golden rule, aviate, navigate, communicate. Cheers. Cheers.